Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 119. There's going to be a lot more scripture than that, but that's where we'll start. Um, I'm checking on myself here. Okay. I um, hopefully you got an outline. This is the this is basically what we're going to talk about. There'll be more detail than just this, but uh, I had scripture uh, on slides. All the the text that you have here, I have on the slides. The Lord had other plans, so we won't see it. Um, you're more than welcome to turn to each passage. I doubt you'll keep up. Maybe you will. Uh, if you had the pleasure of growing up on sword drills, maybe this will have a chance to refresh your skills. Psalm 119. And we'll be, uh, each point, as you might see, we'll start off in Psalm 119, and then we'll go to other passages of Scripture as well. As you are aware, our theme this year, at uh, family camp, and I'm so privileged and blessed to be able to share this uh, the word with you tonight. This is a subject that is I'm not worthy to speak about. Nobody here is. What we talk about tonight is one of the greatest gifts our Lord gave us. Himself in His Word that cannot err, that is flawless, that is pure, that is perfect, that gives us Himself and gives us His promises and shows us the way to live, but I'm getting ahead of myself. The subject tonight is standing firm in the truth. And of course, the age-old question is what? What is the truth? According to the results of the 2022 State of Theology Survey, jointly done by Ligonier Ministries and Lifeway Survey, the majority of U.S. adults don't think the truth is the Bible. Quoting from uh, their thoughts about it, quote, U.S. adults increasingly reject the divine authorship of the Bible, relegating it to the same category as other religious writings and purportedly sacred texts. End quote. As a matter of fact, they also said, quote, this is the clearest and most consistent trend revealed by the State of Theology survey since it began in 2014, end quote. So in other words, they've seen the trend that more and more U.S. adults are rejecting the Bible as true. That that is the trend that's clear and consistent. The statement, their, their question, their statement they judge it by is number 16 on the survey and it says this, quote, The Bible, like all sacred writings, contains helpful accounts of ancient myths, but is not literally true. End quote. So the point is, is they set up the question like this. Like the Bible is a helpful, basically ancient, it's an ancient text. It gives ancient myths, but it's not literally true. That's their statement. So if you agree with it, you reject that the Bible is Literally true, it's God's Word. If you disagree with it, you you would believe how we would believe that the Bible is the Word of God. Let me tell you what the numbers are from the survey. Here's what they say. In 2014, 41% agreed, meaning that the majority would say, no, the Bible is literally true. 2016, 44%. So it gets a little worse. 2018, 47%. 2020, 48%. 2022, 53%. The survey had some interesting findings. I encourage you to review it when you have the opportunity. I'm still thinking about it. 
A good question to always ask, though, in respect to what people believe is this. Why do people believe what they believe? What's the payoff? People don't believe things just to believe them. There has to be a benefit, right? Looking here in Lifeway, they were quite insightful here. They said, quote, This view makes it easy for individuals to accept biblical teaching that they resonate with while simultaneously rejecting any biblical teaching that is out of step with their own personal views or broader cultural values. End quote. So they pick and choose what they want, basically. They can say, oh, well, I agree with the Bible on this, so I'll accept that as true. Oh, that really rubs up against the way I want to live my life, so no, I'm not going to accept that. That's convenient for a world that wants to be its own God. But what does the Bible say about itself? What does God say about itself? The Bible says that God's Word is truth. Psalm 119, 160. The sum of your Word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Every part of God's Word is the truth. And every one of God's rules and every part of God's Word will endure forever. So no matter what any survey might say or what people might say, at the end, God's Word will outlast them all. And it will be true. John 17, 17. Pastor Scott taught from the, preached from this text this past Sunday. Sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. God makes us more holy. He makes us more like Christ by the truth, which is His Word. And here's a passage I'm sure many of you are familiar with. John 18, verse 37. This is Jesus on trial in front of Pilate. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I am come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Jesus came to bear witness to the truth. His whole life testified to it. And those who belong to the truth listen to Him. It stands to reason then that those who don't listen to Him don't belong to the truth. Now, this, this psalm that we will be be our launching pad is a psalm. It's of course, you might know it's the longest, if you consider it to be a chapter in the Bible, it is the longest chapter in the Bible. It's certainly the longest psalm. Uh, we don't know who wrote it, but it is all about God's law. It is really all about God's Word. I was listening to it on the way down here, and if you uh, and just reading it is a little over 16 minutes long. But if you want to be washed and have your soul cleansed and overcome by the beauty of the Word of God, listen to that psalm being read. Read it out loud to yourself. How magnificent and glorious it's... And it's so multifaceted. There's so much we can't even get to here tonight. But I want to use it as a launching pad for talking about God's Word. And now more than ever, the church, if it's to be salt and light if it's to be the restrainer of evil in the world, if it is to be Christ's body, if it is to be a witness, if it is to be a pillar and buttress of the truth, 1 Timothy 3.15, then we must stand firm in it. 
We must stand firm in the Word of God. There are many reasons why we should stand firm in the truth of God's Word. Tonight, we'll only look at ten. Number one, stand firm in the truth because it gives us access to God. And as you can see on your handout, you have all your points there, so you don't even have to worry about writing them down tonight. They're all there in front of you. But of course, if you want to add on to that, no one's going to stop you. But stand firm in the truth because it gives us access to God. Psalm 119, verse 94. I am yours. Save me, for I have sought your precepts. The psalmist belongs to God. He asked for deliverance because he has sought God's precepts. Uh, Bible teacher George Zemeck notes that God sees the psalmist's request. Well, first he talks about the fact that the request is kind of like on two fronts. It's got two bases. The first base is basically the fact that he belongs to God. God's redeemed him. Basically, God saved him. So the psalmist is asking for deliverance because he belongs to God. That's his one basis. But the second one is the one I want to focus in on here. George Zemeck notes that God sees the psalmist's request, quote, as appropriate with a secondary factor, his persistent pursuit of God's precepts, end quote. So the idea is is that the psalmist appeals to God for deliverance because he pursues God's word. God, deliver me, bring salvation to me, save me, because I seek what you've said. I seek your word. George Zemeck, he quotes Spurgeon from the treasury of David. He quotes him, and, and uh, Spur, he quotes Spurgeon as saying, quote, Consecration is a good plea for preservation. End quote. So, if, you, if you're pleading for God to preserve you, consecrating yourself for God is a, is a good plea to appeal to God for. His pursuit of God's word is a basis upon which he pleads for God's hand to help him. He can access God's help through His Word. Now the second verse we have for this point is 2 Peter 1, 20-21. And it says this, Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Scripture does not originate from man's imagination, from man's determination, or man's deep reflection. Though men wrote Scripture, they are not its only authors. Its other author is God, who guided men in their speech through the Holy Spirit. When we read the words of Scripture, we are reading both men's words and God's words. We read God's thoughts. Think about that one for a moment. We read the thoughts of the eternal God when we read the Word of God. We read His words. We read His actions. We read His plans. We read His promises. We read His covenants. When we read God's Word, we see God. Truly. We meet God in His Word. I like I remember one time, uh, I remember hearing Brian Chapel, he's a former seminary professor, and he's a pastor. He uh, talked about talking about Psalm 19, which was read earlier. He said, basically, if you didn't know any better when you're talking about that portion, talking about Scripture, you would think that it was talking about God. 
The fear of the Lord is clean. Precepts of the Lord are right. The law of the Lord is perfect. When we read God's Word, we access Him. He's within our grasp. He communicates to us. He tells us about Himself. We see His perfection. If you want to access God, if you want to know Him truly, know this book. Devote yourself to it. Prayerfully study it. That's important. And too often something we neglect. Prayerfully study it. Get good resources that teach and explain what it says and help you learn it. Study it. And discuss it with others and see how God will reveal Himself to you. So our first point, stand firm in the truth because it gives us access to God. Number two, stand firm in the truth because it is God's instrument for giving eternal life. It's God's instrument for giving eternal life. Psalm 119, verse 93, which says this, I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. The psalmist states that for him, God's precepts are unforgettable. Because by those precepts, God made him alive. God gave him life. God uses His Word to give true spiritual life to the psalmist's soul. The psalmist says in the previous verse, look at the previous verse, that if God's law had not been His delight, then He would have perished in His affliction. He would have perished. He would have died. God's Word, however, came to the rescue. And the all-powerful God gave the psalmist the life he needed through His Word. And we have two New Testament texts for this. James 1, verse 18. Of His own will, He brought us forth by the Word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of His creatures. James says that because of God's will, So you have the sovereignty of God there because of God's will, God's doing. As it said, He gave us life by His Word, by the Word of truth, which is the Scriptures. He did this so that we would be the first fruits. That's another way of saying that's the first sampling of the harvest that's going to come of His creation. God causes people to be born again by His Word. And that brings us to 1 Peter 1, verse 23. Peter says, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. Peter says, We have been born again, have been given spiritual life, not of a seed that perishes. Not one that doesn't last. No. We have been given spiritual life. We have been brought to life. Through God's Word, which itself is living and abiding. It remains. It does not fade away. It never perishes. The logic is so simple. So simple that we might be tempted to think that it can't be true. It can't be that simple. But hallelujah, it is true that if the Scriptures are the instrument that our powerful God uses to give the new birth and eternal life to His own, if it's really that simple, that God uses His Word to give eternal life, then if we really desire men and women 
to be saved from this crooked generation and from the wrath to come and be saved to eternal fellowship with this God, this majestic God in His kingdom to come, if that's what we want, then we must get rid of every other instrument we would use to try to bring people to eternal life. Get rid of them all. Except this instrument and ones that help us understand it. And to apply it. To use the Apostle Paul's language, let us renounce disgraceful, underhanded ways. Refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with this word. But instead, let us openly state the truth. And if God said, this is the means by which He gives life, then we need to proclaim it and watch it do its work. So we stand firm in the truth because this is the instrument that God used to give eternal life. Point number three. Stand firm in the truth because it makes us wiser than the world. Stand firm in the truth because it makes us wiser than the world. Psalm 119, verses 98 through 100. Verses 98 through 100, which says this. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies. For it is with me. It is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers. For your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged. For I keep your precepts. See how the psalmist reveres the word's ability to make him wiser than the world. Let's look at it. First, God's word makes him wiser than his enemies. Verse 98, why? Because it remains with him. God saved him with the word and God causes this word to remain in him. And he meditates on it and it's with him. He can access it whenever he needs it. He's wiser than his enemies because he has his instrument, his weapon ready at hand. Hidden in his heart. That's another verse we'll get to later. Because of that, he's wiser than his enemies. The second, God's word makes him, gives him more understanding than all of his teachers because he meditates on it. It is constantly going through his mind and he meditates on it and he applies it so that he becomes wiser than the ones who would teach him. And then third, God's Word causes him to understand more than those who you would think would typically possess a greater amount of wisdom than he. And that's the aged, right? Because he keeps God's Word. Those who deeply meditate upon, apply and perform God's Word are wiser than any enemy that comes against them. Any teacher under which they sit and any aged person who has gained wisdom by living a lifetime of experiences. Do you believe what that says? That the Word of God can make you wiser than all of them. If you know God's Word rightly and know how to apply it correctly, then you can speak true wisdom to any situation to which the Bible speaks. Any of them. And the wisdom that you speak will be greater than the wisdom by given by anyone who lacks the Holy Spirit. Right there. Our New Testament text, 1 Corinthians 2, 10-16. This is a long one. 
These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. You should really look at this verse, this passage later. It's incredible. Keep going. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct Him? But we have the mind of Christ. This magnificent passage in 1 Corinthians says many things, but we'll call attention to a few. First, the Holy Spirit searches the depths of the omniscient, omnisapient God. Yeah, omnisapient. That's a big word. Uh, one of my hero, I think I might have heard that word first from one of my heroes of the faith, Norman Geisler. The, the word basically means all wise. Omnisapient. All wise. So think about this. The Holy Spirit searches the depths of the God who knows all and is all wise. Okay, that's the first one. The Holy Spirit comprehends the thoughts of this all-wise, all-knowing God. He understands Him. Third, Christians have received this Holy Spirit who searches the depths of this all-wise, all-knowing God and He understands His thoughts. Why? So that we might understand what this God has freely given to us by His gracious hand. Fourth, this is given in words taught by the Holy Spirit Himself. This is Scripture itself. So tracking with me. The Holy Spirit searches the depths of our all-wise and all-knowing God. The Holy Spirit understands this all-wise, all-knowing God. We have received this Holy Spirit who knows this all-wise, all-knowing God, who understands Him. We've received this Holy Spirit and He's given us this through words. Okay? Words. Five. The unspiritual, fleshly, unregenerate person does not accept what the Spirit reveals because it seems like foolishness to him or her. They cannot understand what the Spirit reveals because they're unspiritual. In other words, they do not have the Spirit who interprets what He reveals. However, the spiritual person, that is, the person filled with the Holy Spirit, judges or discerns all things. Because he or she has the mind of Christ through the Spirit's empowerment. No one can instruct them or judge their wisdom because he or she has the highest understanding there is. The mind of Christ given by the Spirit through His words which are recorded in the Word of God. We have access to wisdom that we can't even fully grasp but what we know is true. Because the Spirit tells us this and He knows the thoughts of this all-wise, all-knowing God. This is incredible. So what's the application? 
We must not cease to speak and skillfully apply Scripture because the unbeliever doesn't accept it. We don't stop. We must continue to speak and apply it because we, the church, are a pillar and buttress of the truth. That's 1 Timothy 3.15. Look that up. We are the ones who bring God's mind to bear on every and each situation. Can you imagine that? We are a pillar and buttress of the truth in the world. We speak God's mind to the situation. We speak God's wisdom. We speak His thoughts. We are the ones who bring the truth. The church is. Because we have the Spirit and we have His Word. We bring God to bear in every field of study, every personal relationship, every trade, every job, every situation of life. And if we know and apply the Word rightly, no one will be able to refute it. Number four. Stand firm in the truth because it is our hiding place and our shield. Psalm 119, verse 114. You are my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word. Notice how the psalmist says that the Lord is his hiding place and his shield. But see where his hope's placed though, right? God is his hiding place and his shield, but what? What's he hoping? The word. The Lord is the psalmist's hiding place and shield through his word in which the psalmist hopes. The psalmist trusts in God's laws and his promises, which serve as his hiding place from trouble and a shield against the attacks of his enemies. Proverbs 30, verse 5. Not a New Testament one, but still good. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. In Agur's list of Proverbs, he says that every word God, the word of God proves true. Now the Legacy Standard Bible and the 95 version of the New American Standard render this verse like this, quote, every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. While the Christian Standard Bible renders it like this, quote, every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. The thought here is that God's word is pure or has been purified by like gold, which has been thoroughly refined. It has no impurities in it. It contains no flaws. It's not like man's words, which contain errors, flaws, imperfections, and falsehoods. God's word is not fraudulent. It's authentic. It has been tested and has been found to be genuine. Notice then the following thought. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. The thought switches to God being a shield. How is God a shield? Those who trust the purity of His Word will find that it will shield Him from the enemy's attack. It will withstand the onslaught and it will come out of the battle intact and worthy of trust. So, brothers and sisters, when the enemy lies about us and about our world... We can take refuge. Our shield is God's Word. We can shield ourselves from His attacks and remind ourselves of God's truth. So when we're fed lies all of the time, and all you got to do is turn on your social media app and get a feed of that if that's what you want. Or news. Or whatever else is your preference. And are poisoning your mind 
You can go back to this word and have a, you have a shield and a refuge from the, from the world's lies. Amen. And He can tell you what the truth is. Because I don't know about you, sometimes you, you see so much, so much lying out there and, and wonder, you start to question yourself like, maybe I'm wrong. Anyone like that? Like, maybe I have it wrong. God is a shield for people like us because He says, no, 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 you're right, this is the truth. Stand in it. Number five, stand firm in the truth because it sanctifies you and equips you. Stand firm in the truth because it sanctifies and equips you. Psalm 119, verse 9. Many of you know this. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. A young man or a young woman looking for instruction on how to keep his or her life pure can do so by guarding it according to God's word. He studies, or she, studies what God's Word says about how to live in every aspect of life. They take inventory of their life so that they can see where they match up to the Lord's standard and where they fall short. They can make plans. They could run to the Lord and seek forgiveness because our Word gives us the promise of that, right? It tells us how to do that. We can make plans on how to live more fully, live according to this Word, and then we can execute our plan. The Lord's Word can keep our way pure if we guard it by it. Then two verses later, verse 11, Psalm 119. I have stored up Your Word in my heart that I might not sin against You. The psalmist has meditated upon, memorized, and internalized God's Word in the center of his soul to avoid sin against the God that he loves. He learns what his Lord is like what he is God loves and what is God hates. And he meditates on it to such a degree that when he's approached by sin in all its devious forms, he can retrieve the appropriate weapon that he's got from the Word that he's already stored in his warehouse of Scripture that's well stocked. So he goes and he gets the appropriate weapon and he comes back and uses it. It's the way I kind of maybe want to illustrate it here. The point is, is that we store God's word so that when sin comes against us, we can fend it off. We can attack it. Second Timothy three sixteen through seventeen, also a verse you're probably very familiar with. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Not only does Scripture sanctify you, make you more like Christ, make you more holy, it also sufficiently equips the one who would teach God's Word, but not only them, but all who call Jesus Lord. It can equip you for every good work that the Lord has called you to. The Scriptures, look, they profit the believer. How do they profit? They teach about God and His ways. They reprove you when you're wrong. They correct your thinking and your behavior. And they train you for righteousness. The Word of God is complete. It is sufficient to tell you how to live for God. If we want to keep our souls from shipwreck due to sin and equip ourselves to know our Lord, His ways, 
and our ways in light of His ways, if we want, to, if we want something that is sufficient and complete for that, let the Lord's sweet, life-giving breath through this Word breathe on you. Amen. When you open, read, and apply His Word. Number six. Stand firm in the truth because it is a weapon of our warfare. Stand firm in the truth because it is a weapon of our warfare. Psalm 119, verse 10. The wicked have laid a snare for me, but I do not stray from your precepts. The psalmist says the wicked have laid a trap for him, but instead of being caught in the trap, he doesn't stray from God's word, from God's precepts. Thereby, he eludes the trap. He gets around it, he gets away from it. While not an offensive weapon here, certainly God's word can be used defensively to keep us from falling prey to an enemy's trap. Ephesians 6, half of verse 17. I will briefly trespass into Warren's text for tomorrow. In the well-known armor of God passage, Paul lists the spiritual armor which the believer must put on in order to stand against the devil's schemes. Many weapons are mentioned, but as Bible teachers, it's been pointed out, the only offensive piece of armory Paul mentions is a sword, the sword of the Spirit. Although I think prayer might be offensive too. But Warren could talk about that. The sword of the Spirit. And Paul doesn't leave it to the Ephesians' imagination to determine what the sword is. It's God's Word. This is the weapon God has given us to attack our enemy, and if we know how to use it, it will be effective. Amen. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5 For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. And Paul's reply to the Corinthians who suspect him and his company of walking according to the flesh, he states that while they do walk in the flesh, that is, physically, the warfare they wage is not physical, but it is powerful. The weapons of their warfare are not physical, but they have God's omnipotent power. These weapons' effectiveness is deadly, for they destroy satanic strongholds, places of Satan's supposed dominance. Paul and his company may seem timid in person, but their weapons leave destruction in their path. What do they destroy? Arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And what is the weapon Paul and his associates use to destroy these arguments and lofty opinions? It's God's very knowledge. In his word. These arguments and lofty opinions have no chance against the word of one who kills and makes alive, who saves and causes disaster, who exalts and humbles, who restores and destroys. The world's arguments and lofty opinions being raised against the knowledge of God is like bringing a plastic sword to a fight when the opponent is armed with a bomb that when fired disintegrates the opponent and his weaponry atom by atom until it is all completely undone. Nothing can hope to stand in the path of the Word of God. Nothing. 
The only sane course of action is to lay their weapons down and plead for mercy. What is needed in this hour are not only men and women who love the Word of God, not only men and women who know the Word of God, not only men and women who live according to the Word of God, as all good as that is, but also men and women who know how to apply the Word of God and bring its truth to bear in any and all matters of life. Hebrews 4, 12-13 For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him of whom, to whom we must give an account. The Word of God is a weapon that is alive and active. It's always working. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, and it pierces the soul deeply. It divides bone marrow from the joints. It is a weapon of fine precision. It even reaches where no human instrument can access the heart's thoughts and motives. I believe it's safe to say that all of us at one point or another have wanted the ability to read another person's thoughts and mind to know what he or she is really thinking. What this text says is that the Bible, in a manner of speaking, does that. It knows every man or woman's thoughts and it knows every man or woman's intentions. How can it know that? Because it is written by the One who knows all things. And the Spirit uses the Word to bring the thoughts and intentions of the heart to light and in full view of God Himself. Notice in verse 13 how the author of Hebrews, after talking about God's Word, goes on to say that no creature is hidden from His sight. Not its. His, meaning God's. God, through His Word, exposes everyone, even the deepest parts of who they are, to His all-seeing gaze. And it is to Him that we all, one day, must give an account for our lives. The Bible cuts through the lies, the pretense, the shadows, the darkness, and all the defenses of all who would try to evade its gaze. Such attempts are fruitless and in vain. It clearly reveals who men and women truly are. And what is the world's response then to this word? It can't refute it because it's perfect and it cannot successfully be contradicted or counteracted. So the world must opt for other tactics. It includes ignoring God's word. If they can't do that, then they'll drown themselves in pleasure, right? They try to drown out God's word. If that doesn't work, then they'll attack the messenger that ever happen to anybody? And if they can't do that, then they'll go to the well-worn strategy of attacking the truthfulness of the Scriptures. This is why the war for the Bible is that the war that will never end until the Lord returns. And it's one that we must continue to wage. Now, there's an uh, apologist and evangelist, Cy Ten Bergenkay, who put this basically so well, that what Satan is trying to do is he's trying to get you to put down your sword. And he'll do it in a number of ways. He'll try to start pulling your grip off of it by getting you to not trust it, to question it. You say, whoa there, buddy. I know you love that sword. I know you love it so much, but look at all the damage you're doing to all these people. Don't you care about their feelings? Don't you care about how they'll look at you? 
We should be loving one another, and we certainly should, right? Because we can certainly sin when we wield the Word of God. But what he's trying to do is he's trying to pull your fingers off of the sword so you put it down. Do you know why? Because it's working. You've seen in a movie, right, where you've got somebody who's desperate and they got a gun, and what are they trying to do in the movie? Put the gun down. Put the gun down. Let's talk. Put the gun down. That's like Satan going to you. Put the sword down. Put the sword down. Put the sword down. Do you know what you do when Satan tries to tell you to put the sword down? You go for his head. You thrust it through his gut. You never put the sword down. Ever. Because it's working. That's why people want to drown out the Word of God because it shows them who they really are. And they feel like God is watching them because He is. The Word works. It's effective. And if we keep using it well, and we keep using it in love, and we keep using it rightfully, what's He going to do? Go back to point two. Bring eternal life to those who are His. Oh, brothers and sisters, never put down your sword. Never. Point seven. Stand firm in the truth because it endures forever. Psalm 119, verse 89. Forever, O Lord, Your Word is fixed, firmly fixed in the heavens. The Lord's Word lasts forever. It's fixed and it's immovable. It will never change. And it resides in heaven where God is. Where it will never wear out and will never be subject to change or decay. Isaiah 40, verses 7 through 8, and Peter references this passage. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. In this passage, Isaiah compares two objects of God's speech, his creation and his word. Creation will wither, fade, and decay, but God's word is is as eternal as he is. As such, it will stand as long as He stands. How long does God stand? Forever. Because God stands forever, unchanging and movable, so will His Word. Do you need a constant, unchanging, lasting standard by which you can know God? Do you need an unchanging standard to which you can know the world truly? Do you need an unchanging standard to know God's ways? Do you need an unchanging standard to know yourself? Because you know you can't even trust yourself to judge yourself. Do you need an unchanging standard to live according to God's ways? Well, look no further than God's unchanging, fixed, eternal word. Number eight. Stand firm in the truth because it gives hope. Psalm 119, verse 81. My soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. Then we'll just keep going. Romans 15, verse 4. For whatever was written in former times was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. The Scriptures in Paul's day, that is the Old Testament, were written not only for the original audience, but also for them. That's what it says. It is for their instruction, that through their endurance through trials, and with one another and the Scriptures' encouragement, they can have hope. The Old Testament is full of instruction and full of hope for us. 
we would be wise to read it, listen to it, and apply it. And not only the old, but the new. But the ultimate hope of the Old Testament is the Messiah, who is Jesus. Old Testament scholar John Sailhammer said this, The Pentateuch and the rest of the Hebrew Bible tells us there will be a Messiah. The New Testament tells us that Jesus is the Messiah spoken of in the Hebrew Bible. End quote. That's as simple as you can make it, almost. Old Testament, there's a Messiah. New Testament, it's Jesus. <laughs> James Hamilton, quote, From start to finish, the Old Testament is a messianic document written from a messianic perspective to sustain a messianic hope. End quote. So the idea is, the whole Old Testament is written about the Messiah. It's written about Him from, his pers- uh, from a perspective about Him and it's to sustain the hope that the Messiah will come. And guess what? He didn't fail. Number nine, stand firm in the truth because God will fulfill it. Psalm 119, verses 41 through 42. Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Then I shall have an answer for him who taunts me. For I trust in your word. The psalmist wants the Lord's steadfast, covenant, loyal love to come to him. Another way the psalmist describes this loyal love is God's salvation according to His promise. Why does he want this steadfast love, this salvation to come to him? Because he wants to have an answer, a response to the person who taunts him. What would someone taunt him say? Maybe something like this. Where is your God when you're in trouble? Will He come to rescue you? Where is He? Your trust is misplaced. You're a fool. He's abandoned you, if He exists at all. Who will save you from me? Certainly no God. Yet the Lord's steadfast love, when it comes, and His salvation comes, He will fulfill His promise to the psalmist. Yahweh will thoroughly demonstrate His faithfulness and His promise and bring shame upon those who have openly mocked Him and His servants. Then the psalmist will have an answer for the one who taunts him. God fulfilled His Word. Matthew 5, 17-18, Jesus said this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus ensures His audience during His sermon that He did not come to abolish the Old Testament. Law and prophets, that's what that is. He didn't come to nullify it or to remove it. He came to fulfill it. Until the heavens and earth pass away, not even the smallest parts from it will pass away before He accomplishes all of it. So that means that if you read something that God hasn't accomplished yet in His Word, it means that He will. Wait for it. God's Son lived His life to fulfill His mission, please His Father, fulfill His will, and to fulfill Scripture. He said, my food is to do the will of Him who sent me and accomplish His Word. That's work. That's John 4.34. Jesus said to Peter in the garden, after He told him to put away His sword, after He cut off Malchus's ear, He said He could appeal to angels to rescue Him, but then He says this, 
But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? That's Matthew 26.54. Jesus was driven to fulfill it. And you know, I've looked at this book and I've never seen him fail once. Here in Matthew 5.17-18, we have the highest guarantee of the greatest caliber, the finest grade and the surest foundation. Everything in this book will be fulfilled exactly as God says it will be. There's nothing more certain in time and space than this assurance by our Savior that all of Scripture will be brought to completion. Therefore, you could put your trust and confidence in all of it. As it's been said, the, scripture, the, excuse me, the Scriptures are worthy of your trust. You can trust your life. We can trust our lives with His covenants and His promises, knowing that He will be faithful to fulfill them. I have three examples, but since I'm way over, we'll go to one. Romans 12, verse 19. Just turn there really quickly. Romans 12, verse 19. You can stand sure that God will fulfill this. And this gets very practical very quickly. Romans 12, verse 19. What's it say? Beloved, never... What's that? Never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. You know, the Lord is very devoted to righting all wrongs and to punishing those who do not repent. God is very committed to justice. But what's this verse tell us not to do? What's it say? Don't avenge yourselves, right? Why? Why? It's God's job. He's going to do it. So when we attempt to avenge ourselves... We're guilty either of ignorance, because we don't know that the Bible says this, or we forget, or it's just simple unbelief. Because we don't believe that God will do what He said. But how should we live then according to this verse? If we know that God has fulfilled all His promises before, then we can trust that we don't have to avenge ourselves because if they don't turn to Christ, that God will handle it. And God will do it better than you or I ever could. That's just one example practically of how we can stand firm in the truth because God is going to fulfill it. And then finally, stand firm in the truth because those who do will be rewarded and those who don't will perish. Psalm 19, verse 11. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Scripture warns us and gives us a promise if we keep it. There's a great reward for those who do so. We'll go back to our text, Psalm 119, verse 2. Blessed are those who keep His testimonies, who seek Him with their whole heart. George Zemeck again in his commentary in Psalm 119 says this, that those who characteristically obey His Word are the ones who experience the special blessing of a transcendent satisfaction. And he says also, quote, the Word of God is the vehicle by means of which we are to wholeheartedly pursue Him. So, and stopping the quote, we, we please Him by going through the Word of God. 
We pursue Him, rather, by, by going to the Word of God. Continue with the quote. The purpose of knowing the Word of God is to know the God of the Word. End quote. There is a reward in the here and now, not just the future, but the here and now, for standing firm in the truth. Those who obey God's Word will experience a satisfaction that is far above and longer lasting than any pleasure the world can offer. It brings true happiness indeed. Also in Psalm 119, verse 155, Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek your statutes. Those who do not seek God's Word ultimately do not seek after the God of the Word, and as a result, will not find salvation. As a matter of fact, they will find that salvation in reality is far from them. But that doesn't mean they escape God, though. Because in Revelation 14, verse 10, it says that one day they will find themselves in the presence of the Lamb and His holy angels under the full, undiluted, unmitigated wrath of God. The day of salvation will be over and the day of the Lord will have come. Those who fail to heed the Word have that to look forward to. But not those who keep it. Matthew 7, 24-27 Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Jesus ends His famous sermon by equating His words with God's words. That's what He's doing. In this fashion, those who hears His words and does them will endure the storm, but those who hear Him but don't will not endure the storm, but fall under His power. God said through Moses in Deuteronomy 18 that He would raise up a prophet like Moses from among them who would have God's words in His mouth and would speak all that He commands Him. He also warned that if they didn't listen to that prophet, God Himself would require it of him. Yea, verily, God will require it of everyone who does not listen to Jesus. But God will reward everyone who believes and does His word so, both now and in the day to come. So in conclusion, our charge tonight to stand firm in the truth, God's word, is one that has been before the church for nearly 2,000 years. And is one that has been with God's people even before that. It is a charge that comes to us with an even greater urgency now than perhaps it ever has before. As our families, our friends, our schools, our neighborhoods, our towns, our state, our country, and even our world plunge deeper into spiritual darkness. Grow more resolute in their hatred for Christ's sheep. Suffer from the wounds they inflict upon themselves as a result of rejecting God's life-giving word. Because you realize that even people who reject God's Word are hurting themselves even now. Yes, there is the wrath to come, but when you don't live according to God's ways, the natural consequence of it is you cause yourself pain. And the world is inflicting the pain on themselves. And they slide ever closer to holy judgment. It's a charge that's going to require deep reflection, growing repentance, and painful change. It will require us to make deep sacrifices. In his biography on John MacArthur, Ian Murray tells this story about a young man who wanted to know his Bible. He says, quote, 
An enthusiastic young man once introduced himself to a well-known Bible teacher with the words, Oh, sir, I'd give the world if I knew the Bible like you do. The older man looked at him straight in the eye and said, straight in the eye and replied, Good, because that is what it will cost you. End quote. But if we are to stand firm in the truth so that we can have a growing relationship with God, so that we can see the salvation of the lost, we can have a wisdom that's greater than the world's, we can hide from attack, we can be more holy and equipped, we can be in the spiritual battle, we can have a foundation that is tried and enduring, we can have hope, we can be assured that God will be faithful to do all that He said He would do, we can be rewarded and escape judgment, then the sacrifice will be worth it. For in that stand, we will truly live. And Psalm 119, verse 144 has the last word. Your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I may live. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You very much tonight for this Word. I pray, Father, that what has been said would be a challenge, would be encouraging, would give hope, and would give us cause for deep reflection and show us where we need to change. Forgive us, Lord. We're thankful for the grace in which we live. Your Word says that we could come to You freely for forgiveness. If we confess our sins, You are faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Help us to walk according to Your ways and according to this Word because it is in this Word that there is the only hope there is. In Jesus' name, Amen.